Good morning. And a couple announcements. The uh, Remedy 2nd Edition, as you know, is now available, but I needed to make announcements that it's only available in the United States. We had several people around the world emailing that they tried to order it on Amazon, and right now it's only available in the U.S. And if you live locally and contact Francesca, or if you're not local, want to get it by the case, then you can actually get it even less expensively than what's on Amazon. The Amazon prices have their charges and all that stuff in there. So it's a little bit more expensive on Amazon. But locally, if you contact Francesca and get it from her, it's even less expensive. And if you want to do it by the case, don't email if you're not local and ask for that reduced pricing on an individual basis because Francesca does not have the time to unpack cases and repackage and do all that on an individual basis. But by the case, we can drop a case in the mail, no problem. And we've also received... So many, literally hundreds of letters and emails from people who have been reading the remedy and telling us how much it's helped them. And if you're one of those people, we would appreciate you going online to the Amazon, sign into your account, (laughs) and giving us a five-star review if you've really enjoyed it. And make sure you're clicking on the remedy sold by Come and Reason because there's other vendors selling our first edition out there. So be sure you click on ours and you'll see it says sold by Come and Reason right there. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the truth of your kingdom of love, and, and how we see the, uh, the light of, of heavenly love moving forward in hearts and minds in our community. We ask that you will be with us today, and let us come to know you better and how we can participate in your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing the lesson, Prophecy and Scripture, in um, First and Second Peter, Feed My Sheep. And the title is Prophecy in Scripture. And so the question is, first question is, what is the primary, notice we're primary, not exclusive, primary, first purpose of Bible prophecy? Is it primarily to give us the ability to know the future before it happens? Is that its primary purpose? Is it to, so that we can map out a specific sequence of events and that we can then plan because of those, those sequence of events? Is that its primary purpose? Or, or is it to demonstrate to us that God has foreknowledge and that nothing catches him by surprise and thus increase our faith and confidence in God. I'm going to suggest the latter, that the latter is the primary reason for Bible prophecy. And if, in fact, that is the case, the primary reason is to enhance our faith in God. When in the flow of time do we get to experience that? Before or after the events prophesied happen? So we don't get the confidence, really, until after the events happen, not before. So if you, uh, there's a principle in Scripture about this, and I want to read you a couple of Bible texts. One is Deuteronomy 18.22. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And then John 14, 28 and 29, Jesus is speaking here to his his disciples. You heard me say that I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Is there a principle in these two verses being described here about how we are to understand the purpose of prophecy? Did you hear the principle there? I'm telling this before it happens so that you can map out and be ready for it. No. So that when it does happen, you'll believe. You'll have faith. You'll have confidence. You'll know. You'll trust. So I'm going to suggest the primary purpose of Bible prophecy is to 
be experienced, the primary purpose is to be experienced after the events happen. Because we can't know whether it's a true prophet or a false prophet until what's prophesied has occurred or not. You following me? Yeah. But there's a secondary purpose of Bible prophecy, which is, I believe, to give a general warning and overview safeguards, but not a specific roadmap of exactly who, what, when, and where. I'll give you examples. Jesus' prophecy about the persecution of the saints. The events prior to the second coming. False messiahs going out into the world. Seek, don't seek to find the Messiah in the secret place, but as the sun shines from the east into the west, it will be like his coming. These are all things that Jesus said. Notice these types of prophecies give measurable, testable, but non-specific points which keep us from going down wrong paths. What do I mean by non-specific? It doesn't tell you the day, the hour, the name of the person involved, uh, the specific issues on how the saints would be. Well, on January 13, 1343, uh, you know, 1,300 years from now, there'll be a, a, a particular um, uh, prelate from the Roman Catholic Church who's going to go to a particular city in Europe and he's going to arrest this particular person. He's going to put them in prison and try. That's not in the Bible prophecy. It just says the saints are going to be persecuted. The specific details are not there. It's an overview. It's usually only after the events transpire that we're able to fill in the specific details. Why is that? Why? First, there's first because the prophecies themselves do not give the specific details. They're just very general overviews. But second, there's a second reason. If God really does know the future before it happens, as I believe he does, why doesn't he, though, give us those details? with persons and names and places and times and dates of exact things that are going to happen. Why doesn't he do it that way? Well, consider this. Have you ever actually contemplated how your life would be different if you knew with 100% certainty either of the following two things? The specific day, time, and method of your death. Or the specific day, time of the second coming of Christ. If you knew with 100% certainty either one of those events, do you think how you live today would change? If you knew the second coming of Christ wasn't for another 700 years, would that encourage you or discourage you? Would you be tempted to become apathetic, less engaged? If you knew with 100% certainty that Christ would appear in the clouds with all his holy angels three days from now at 2.14 p.m. in the afternoon, three days from now, with 100, that's when it's happening. Would you do things differently for the next three days? Would you pay all your bills that we were planning on writing on Sunday? Are you going to pay all your bills for the week? Are you going to write those checks out? Are you going to mow the lawn? Are you going to mow the lawn? Are you going to take your car in for a tune-up? I mean, think all the things you're doing every day that are personal responsibilities that you would just leave undone. Is there a reason we don't know the specific details? We know the general signs to watch for, the, the hour in which, you know, when I say hour, the time in human history that we're living. If you knew you wouldn't die until 2034, January 7 at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, in a car accident, would you be more or less cautious up until 2034? Would you say, well, I can go skydiving now. I was always afraid to go skydiving. I don't need to worry about it. I can go skydiving now. I can go hang gliding. I can do stuff. Like, I, I, 
Would you would you make different decisions? And would you stay at home on the on the, on that day? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Might a person make different decisions in regards to their salvation? Might they think, "Oh, I got plenty of time to worry about the Lord. I'm going to do this instead." Is there a reason God gives prophecy in general terms that gives us guidance? yet that we don't often understand the specificity and specifics for until it happens. Is there a reason he does it this way? I think maybe he wants you to search a little bit. Even with the prophecies given to Nebuchadnezzar, through the, the dreams that he had, his and Daniel's dreams, even those weren't specific. They were very general. Another kingdom is going to come after you, and another kingdom, and another kingdom. But it didn't tell what date it was going to happen, who the... Um, uh, how they, what method they were going to use, how they were going to do it, who was going to be on guard that day, who was going to be asleep at their post when it happened. I mean, it didn't give all those details. So how does this impact our lives today? We should not, in my view, so this is my opinion now, should not get caught up in being overly concerned with every interpretation of Bible prophecy, particularly if they are about future events with overly detailed specificity. There are people who spend their lives trying to project future specificity on every little Bible prophecy. And I think that's a, a distraction. They're most likely, when time unfolds, find that much of what they predicted is going to be inaccurate. It's going to be a little bit different than what they actually thought. We should review Bible prophecy that have already been fulfilled using them as evidences to build our confidence in God that as the future unfolds, he's got a plan and it's not going to take him by surprise so we can trust him even though we don't know the details. And we should look at the general themes and there are general truths like, for instance, we don't need to seek the second coming of Christ in a secret room with candles burning, holding hands and, and having a seance. So we're not going to find Christ there. But Christ told us that. Don't go to the secret place. If they say he's here, he's there, he's over. We, we know that's not true. We, we don't have to be duped by that to go hunt it out. Well, let me go investigate. Maybe this is the Christ. No, we know he's not. So we have general truths that can keep us off the wrong trails. And then our memory text for today, 2 Peter 1.19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto... Ye do well that ye take heed as unto light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Old King James English right there. It was so, so easy to read. To what is Peter referring? As he talks about the sure word of prophecy, is he talking about prognostication? About the, about the ability to predict the future when he's talking about the sure word of prophecy? Or is he talking about the testimony of God's prophets, what they were giving testimony or teaching about. And he talks about the short word of prophecy. Most of the instances in which you see the word prophecy used in New and Old Testament have nothing to do about the future. It has all to do about speaking God's word. Beautifully said. And Peter, in, in speaking and preaching, was said to be prophesying, and yet what was he doing? He was relating the past. So prophets were primarily spokespersons with a message from God, not pro primarily fortune tellers or future tellers. That's not what they were primarily doing. They were bringing a message, most of the time, for the people in that day, 
Uh, and sometimes, and let's, let's, let's unpack this. This is the same verse, 2 Peter 1.19 out of the NIV. And notice the subtle difference. Instead of we have a more sure word of prophecy, here's how the NIV renders it. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Notice the word of the prophets could be prognostication, but it really becomes much more encompassing than prophesying in the sense of prophetic future events. And what have God's prophets, what I like to call his spokespersons, been telling human beings through history? As, it, as Wendell, I think, pointed out, it's not primarily prophesying future events. What, are they, what has been the core message they've been trying to tell human beings through history? God is trustworthy. God is love. God is love. God is trustworthy. God is not like the Baals. Remember Elijah. If God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. Over and over again, the prophets are coming, and they came to ancient Israel and said, God is not like this. Stop doing all this. God is like this. We need to test the prophets. I'm guessing you're going to get into this later. So primarily it's about proclaiming the truth about God, his characters, methods, the remedy savior, Jesus, who would come and fulfill all God's promises to heal and fix what sin has done. And all of this, this prophetic utterance is, here's what God is like. Here's how his methods work. Here's his law of love. Here we have a savior who's going to come and, and restore God's methods and his law back into the species human. He's going to reconcile us back to God again. This message of the prophets is known as the mystery of God. Or the secret things hidden in times past that Paul writes about. And what made them secret and what made them hidden? Because there's darkness in the world. What's the darkness? Lies and distortion. Told by? Faith. There you go. And we find that same theme coming up over and over again. So it's true that prophets spoke of unfolding truth about God in events yet to come. Thus, in that sense, we have a Messiah, we have a Savior. It was prognostic. But what the prophet spoke was much more than merely predicting the future. The prophets proclaimed universal eternal truths. They proclaimed God's character, his methods, and love, all of which have their origin in God, were obscured by Satan and were revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's why the sure word of the prophets has always been and will always be the truth about God. And sometimes that includes prognostication. Now, could Satan trick people into missing the truth about God? Maybe even an entire church of people because they get so focused on prognostication and prognostic details, they don't even consider what the prophets are saying about the character of God. They're so busy looking at sequence of events and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Could, could it be that, that they make certain elements of Bible prophecy the test of fellowship, and actually argue that if you don't come to the same conclusion, you'll be lost. Say something like a Bible prophecy in which a specific day of worship is involved. And, and if you worship on a particular day, you're going to get the mark of the beast. And, and therefore that becomes a, a test of fellowship. And they, and they promote this issue and they ignore entirely the character and methods of God. Did that happen? Yes. I think sometimes it leads to paralysis of analysis. <laughs> in other words, we miss the concepts of relationship that are found in these statements. Uh, by trying to say it's got to be this way or these are the details, when in reality, the message of the prophet is about relationship, 
that transcends a specific time. Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. So the result from our memory text, Peter points forward that the sure word of the prophets has a result. In the text, it has a result. The result is the day star arises in our hearts. That's the result. Well, what is this? What is the day star arising in our hearts? Anybody know the Greek for day star here? In some versions, the bright and morning star? Lucifer. Lucifer. The Latin is Lucifer. Us. The Greek is phosphorus, when we get phosphorus, and it was translated into the Latin Vulgate version, until the Lucifer arises in our hearts. How many wants Lucifer to arise in their heart? Okay. Well, Lucifer simply means light bearer. And Lucifer, before his fall in heaven, was an honest light bearer, but once he stopped bearing light, he became the accuser, and the accuser is known as Satan or Satan, and so he's no longer bearing light. He bears lies. He bears darkness now. So who is the true light that lightens all men? And so the light bearer, the day star dawning in the heart, means until what? Until you're transformed in the inner person partaking of the divine nature, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, having the mind of Christ, having the character of Christ, no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the day star dawning in your heart. Christ's likeness within. What? Son, this human of righteousness. At the son of righteousness, yeah. This is transforming the inner person. But the light, the truth about God, is shining, in, according to the text, it's shining into a dark place. This is the light is shining into a dark place until the day star dawns. What's the dark place that the light shines? Our hearts and minds. Our hearts and minds. Exactly right. And so I want to read to you with this idea in mind that we've just talked about, um, John chapter 1, 1 through 13 from the remedy. This idea. In the beginning was Jesus, God's very thoughts made audible and visible, and Jesus was, was with God and was God. He was with God before anything existed. Through Jesus, everything was created. Without Jesus, nothing was created that has been created. In Jesus' life, original, unborrowed, underived, and his life enlightens the mind about God, about his character, methods, and principles. The light of Jesus' life shines into the darkened minds of human beings, darkened by Satan's lies about God. But their darkened minds have not understood the light. There came a man called John who was empowered and directed by the Spirit of God. He came as a witness to testify that Jesus was the true light, sent to dispel the darkness and shrouding the mind so that everyone might believe the truth about God and be healed. John was not the light of truth. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that enlightens everyone. God's thoughts, God's very thoughts made audible and visible, or visible and audible, was coming into the world. Jesus, the true light, was in the world, and even though the world was created by him, the world was so blinded by Satan's lies that it didn't even recognize him. Jesus came to his own people, whom he had specially chosen, instructed, and blessed. But many refused to accept him because they preferred Satan's version of a savior. But all who recognized and accepted him, all who valued and accepted the character, methods, and principles he revealed, he made them children of God, transforming them into like character, practicing God's methods and principles. They were made God's children, not because of genetics or biology but because, or because of human procreation, but because of the transformation of mind, heart, and character brought about by God. Is this not what Peter is talking about when he describes the day star dawning in our hearts? It's the same thing. 
It is the light of heavenly truth revealed primarily in the life of Christ that dawns in the darkened hearts and minds of sinners on earth that we open the heart and then the Spirit comes in and takes the light of Christ and reproduces it in us. But those who prefer Satan's version of a God, an imperial dictator who makes up rules and threatens to kill if you don't obey, they're not enlightened. They don't like the light. They prefer a, a king like Caesar. They want a they want a savior to come and throw off the Roman yoke using power and might and kill the enemies of, of uh, uh, kill our enemies. This is what ISIS is looking for in their Messiah. They're looking for the twelfth Imam to come and to use might and power to kill all the infidels. And how many Christians are looking for Jesus to come to kill all the Muslims with a rod of iron? Same God, same distortion, same lie. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. All through his epistles, Peter writes with a sense of certainty. He knows what he is talking about because he knows whom he is talking about. And one reason is that he knows that Jesus was the one to whom the Old Testament prophets pointed. It was Peter's trust in the written word that helped him know the word made flesh. First, I want you to notice the point the lesson makes, the first point they make, which I think is a very valuable point. And that is the Bible prophets that Peter responded to, the Old Testament scriptures, was not primarily about times and places and specific events. It was about a person. It was about a who. The certainty about God and and the problem of sin and God's solution for it and a what? Jesus Christ. That's what, what Peter, I think the lesson is pointing to. But what do you think about the last sentence in that paragraph? And this last sentence is, it was Peter's trust in the written word that helped him know the word made flesh. It's a diagnostic instrument. Trust in the Old Testament scriptures. Written word, yes. It tested his belief in what he saw and confirmed what he, he believed and saw. Any other thoughts? So he, so he uh, Wendell's saying that he could check out Christ by checking out the scriptures and seeing if this person fit what the scriptures said. I think there's value in that. This goes back to the statement that whenever the messengers came from the John to Christ, and he watched him all day long, and then he never answered them, and said, go back and tell him what we saw. Okay. So he didn't answer me. He said, tell you what you saw, and he saw him doing all these things, and that was leading the mind in a certain direction. Any other thoughts? Because I actually think this is backwards. I'm going to suggest it's backward. It wasn't Peter's trust, along with his personal experience, excuse me, it wasn't his knowledge of Old Testament scriptures, it was his experience and knowledge of Jesus Christ and his personal events with him, which enlightened his mind to correctly now understand the scripture. Using multiple threads of evidence. in fact, the way the lesson authors put it, it's a major error for many people I've encountered today. Many Christians and theologians in particular have this approach to, to Scripture. They go to the Bible, they study the Old Testament with all its symbols, its metaphors, its dark speech examples, form their interpretations and beliefs and, uh, and doctrines about what they think it means, and then they go to the New Testament and they force Jesus and plug him into their interpretations. See this all the time. Hear it doesn't matter denomination. I hear it on Moody Radio. I hear it all over the place. I take another approach. Jesus must be studied first. Jesus is the light which lightens all men. 
Jesus must be studied first. Only after coming to a knowledge of Jesus and correctly understanding him, the true light, and what he taught can we properly understand the written word. I'm going to come to you in just a second. Jesus actually said to the religious leaders in his day, John 5, 39 and 40, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And then I've got a couple of quotes from the founders of the Adventist church I'm going to read in just a second. But I think the point is, they studied scriptures, they had certain conclusions about what they thought scriptures taught, Jesus didn't fit those conclusions, and therefore they rejected him. Yes? Jesus was a contrast to the teachers of his time. They had 613 passages which they used to try to tell people, this is exactly what you do. Christ had parables that expressed relationship. And those parables over and over again are talking about having relationships where we make a difference in the lives of others, we help others. The judgment scene in Matthew 25, what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? The sheep were involved in making a difference when somebody was hurting They provided what they needed. They provided a drink of water. They visited them in prison. And over and over again, if we look at the parables of Christ, it is about relationship, not a specific time or place. Well, this is a great point because he's he's honing in on one of the threads of the three threads of the integrative approach. One thread is scripture. All scripture given by God is inspired and useful for teaching, training, correcting, and righteousness. So we we have scriptural evidence. And another thread is experience. Relationship is experience. How do we experience? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Put your hands in my side, he told Thomas. Experience and, and stop doubting and believe based on what? On your experience, on your relationship with me. So relationship is that vital element. And the parables he mentioned, absolutely documenting and, and showing how relationship works in God's unfolding truth. And But there's a third third one that the parables also, different parables, reveal. And that is, Revelation, excuse me, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature seen in what he has made, so that men were without excuse. Nature, science and nature, design law, how God's protocols that hold reality together are always constant, never change, always evidences of giving and, and other-centered love. And so he said, doesn't the sunshine shine on the righteous and the wicked? Doesn't the rain fall on the righteous and the wicked? In other words, he's showing that God's constant care is a constant protocol emanating from his personhood that never changes. And that's his, that's his law, that's his design. And so all three are to be included. So here's a couple of quotes regarding this idea. Do you go to scripture, go to the, go to the symbolism, go to the metaphors, go to the to parables even, which are symbolic representations, and study those, come to your conclusion about what they mean, and then go plug Jesus in? Or do you let Jesus be the prime light that we have all our other dark speech and symbols conform to? So this is out of a book called Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 238. It says, The system of Jewish economy was the gospel in figure, a presentation of Christianity which was to be developed as fast as the minds of the people could comprehend spiritual light. Satan never seeks to make obscure the truths that are plain, and Christ ever seeks to open the mind to comprehend every essential truth concerning the salvation of fallen man. To this day, there are still aspects of truth which are dimly seen, connections that are not understood, and far-reaching depths of the law of God that are uncomprehended. I'm going to suggest, I think that's referring to design law and people still focusing on imperialism and rules that need enforcement. 
This is out of Acts of the Apostles, page 14. Christ was the foundation of the Jewish economy. The whole system of types and symbols was a compacted prophecy of the gospel, a presentation in which were bound up the promises of redemption. And then this last one I like the best. This is Christ's Object Lessons 133. See if you agree with this. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of salvation, its truths are open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. According to this author, the key is the gospel. And where do we find the greatest revelation of the gospel? Is it not in the life of Jesus Christ? Is there a greater revelation of the gospel than Jesus? No. So if the gospel is the key, we need to understand the gospel that Jesus revealed, understand how it works, understand his methods, and then we can go back and more clearly understand the Old Testament. And so I think people who are Old Testament scholars and study that first and come up with their theories and then say, and this is how Jesus filled what we've concluded this all means, they end up stuck. I see it all the time. In fact, Paul, we would say, was an Old Testament scholar, because that's the only scriptures he had, and he was a scholar, uh, a theologian. Before he could become a spokesperson for God, an apostle, an ambassador, what did he have to go through? Does anybody remember his history? He tells you. Not only did he have to have the Damascus Road experience and conversion, after that, something else happened before he was ready to go preach. What was that? Three years in the desert. Three years in the desert, being instructed by Christ re-educated to truly understand all the things he thought he understood of the Old Testament. Now he knows Christ. He knows what Christ has accomplished. He can go back and reprocess all the history, the facts, the, the data points that he knew, but he had them all in the false light, in the false setting. He wasn't ready to be a preacher after Damascus Road. He had to get a, a, new, a new degree in understanding. And then he could go. Fourth paragraph says, some of what the prophets had predicted had come true only in the time in which Peter's readers were then living. These readers were able to hear from those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, truths that even angels desire to know. What did angels desire to know? That's a quote from, from Peter. Angels long to look into these things. The reference is from 1 Peter 1, 12. So here's verses 11 and 12 from 1 Peter. This is out of the NIV. Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. What is the context that Peter says the angels are longing to look into? He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Were the angels longing to look into the incarnation, the 33-year journey, the Gethsemane and crucifixion weekend, the resurrection? Were they longing to look into the plan of salvation, why Christ had to come, his humility, his self-sacrifice? Were they longing to look into this? Why? Why were they longing to understand this? Why? That was the explanation of who God was. It answered their questions about, could God be trusted? Where did sin begin? Along the lines of what you're suggesting. In, with whom? 
What kind of a being? What kind of the being was the first sinner? Angels. An angel was the first sinner. And was the first sin over land rights, embezzlement, prostitution, drug rings, stealing gold off the streets in heaven, the Sabbath, Sabbath. (laughs) diet, jewelry, tax evasion. I mean, were the sins of the angels, any of the things that we focus on with sins. So what was this sin primarily about? Trust. Trust. And and who was the the focus of the question of trust? God and Christ. God and Jesus, Father and Son. We can't trust them. And what was the weapons or the primary weapon that Satan wielded in heaven to undermine trust? He's the father of? Lies. Lies. He told lies. That's right. And what impact, think about lies now, what impact do lies have on a mind if a mind believes them? Or even if the mind doesn't believe them. Let's say you don't fully believe it, but you've now heard the lie. Well, if you believe the lie, believing the lie breaks the circle of love and trust. How about if you hear the lie, but you're not sure if it's true or not? You're just wondering. Now you haven't had the circle of love and trust broken, but there's doubt. There's uncertainty. You're not confident anymore. For instance, let's say one of you is the pastor of your local church. Let's say one of you know the pastor of your local church, and you have a great relationship with the pastor of your local church. You like the pastor of your local church. You even uh, trust the pastor of your local church. And, and the pastor's brother gets up one, one weekend, and with tears in his eyes, asks, you, asks the church to pray for his brother because he discovered his brother's embezzling money from the church. Now, it's not true. The pastor hasn't taken a penny. You know the pastor personally. You like him. You care for him. You've trusted him up to that point. You don't want to believe this. You're really not sure if it's true or not, but now you've heard this. When the pastor gets up and says, I really haven't taken a penny, you can trust me, does that settle the issue for everybody? Now you've got to get a sense. Even loyal beings who still loved and trusted God had questions. There was uncertainty. This is what his lies did. It made uncertainty in the minds of even the loyal. And what happens if the brother of the pastor married your sister? And so he was your brother-in-law who was telling the lie. And you had him over and you really knew him well. And you liked him. Lucifer was a trusted friend of many of the angels. Was he not? You might long to look into the... You might long to look into the... And what would you long to look into? I want to look into the church... Accounting, the records, the accounting books. That's right. I want to look into those. I'd like to see all the details of donations and money spent and so forth. I long to look into this because I want clarity on what's really true. The angels are longing to look into these things. This is making sense. Okay? Yes, no environment of lies prior to this. And so, does this bring back 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5? Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And what are we demolishing? Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. We need to come back to that truth. So, these are some very profound statements from, again, one of the founders of the Adventist Church. The first one's out of Desire of Ages. With this theme in mind, do you see evidence to support this as a concern? This is Desire of Ages 19. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. 
He was the word of God, God's thought made audible in, the, in his prayer for his disciples. He said, I have declared unto them thy name, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, that the love wherein thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. But not alone for his earth-born children was this revelation given. Our little world is a lesson book to the universe. Remember Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, 9? We are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men, Paul wrote. Okay, this is very, very scripture-based. Our little world is a lesson book to the universe. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. And it will be their study through endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificial love. In the light of Calvary, it will be seen, now listen to this next two words, three words, that the law, when you think of law, what's coming next? It will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for heaven and earth. That the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God, and that in the meek and lowly one is manifested the character of him who dwells in the light that no one can approach. What is the law of life? Remember the principle of giving? Every breath you take, remember this? Give away carbon dioxide and the plants give oxygen back to you. Law of giving built right into nature because God constructed reality to work this way. This is the law of giving, the law of love. Bible Commentary 11.32 That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. Pause. I'm going to walk you through Reasoning and thinking things out. Before we even go on to what this author writes, what, what, will present, what will prevent sin in heaven? What do you think it is? What restrains sin? Is it threats of punishment? We have a powerful God who if you break his rules, he will torture you in hell or kill you. That will prevent sin in heaven. Might and power. Flaming swords. We, in heaven we'll feel safe because every time we walk on the street, there'll be an angel in riot gear with a flaming sword on the corner. Is this what restrains sin in heaven? Well, what is sin? What is it? Transgression of the law. Lawlessness. What law? The law of love, which is the foundation of God's government. So, what can effectually keep people from violating love? What is the power of God? We discussed last week's lesson. Truth. Truth and. Love. Truth and love. And this is why the kindness of God, Romans uh, chapter 2, 4. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's not the threats of God that leads us to repentance. That leads us to fear. It's the kindness, the love of God leads us to repentance. We love because he first loved us. Okay? So the power that restrains is the power of love and truth. Truth, And where is the power of love and truth through universal history most potently and effectively demonstrated and revealed? In the cross of Christ. This is the power. I think there's also another element of this, and that's a vivid memory of transgression of design law and the damage that occurred. And, and and then the personal experience of regeneration. Yeah, there are some who suggest our memories will be wiped clean in heaven. We'll have no memory of sin, no whatsoever. And that's what will keep sin from, from uh, 
I like that too. I like that too. It's a lie. So, and and so the 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 consequences of transgression are also seen in the cross too. Yes, absolutely. So here's back then. So with all that in mind, before we even read what the author says, you've reasoned this through. What would you say then would effectually restrain from sin in heaven? Well, here's what the author says. That which alone can effectively restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. It's a significance means a comprehension, an understanding, a transforming power of truth inside the inner being. That's what restrains. And where does the restraint happen? It happens in the being. It's not an external, we're shackled, we have some type of a force shield around us that keep us from hurting others. No, it's an internal transformation that happens when significance of truth has its working power inside us. Keeping going. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. The plan of salvation, making manifest the justice and love of God, provides an eternal safeguard against defection in unfallen worlds, as well as among those who shall be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. First, and that's the end of that quote. Isn't that profound? Now, that's out of a book called, uh, that's out of the Five Bible Commentary, 1132. Now, Do you find that description is consistent with what we've described of God's character revealed in Scripture, what Christ has achieved, the uh, other quotations of Scripture, a theater, spectacle, angels, and how truth and love have power in the beings? Do you find that's consistent? I do, yes. Anyone who has experienced both in their life as well as the history sees that there's only one way for intelligent beings to live happily. It's God's way based upon caring about each other and having a relationship with the God of love whose character is expressed in Christ and all that he did in this earth and his willingness to risk eternity. I agree with you. We be redeemed. And because, let's put the because in everything you said is true, because if we don't, God will use his power to punish us and, and that's why, or because every act of sin reacts upon the sinner causes a change in them, sears the character warps the conscience, causes us to live in fear and guilt and shame and anxiety as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, not because God changed not because God did something to them, their peace was taken by their own internal change and so as you say, we can only have that peace as we are reconciled and live in harmony with God and his designs, that's right not because he inflicts something from us, but because deviation from his design is destructive to us, and it takes our peace. It's the only way for intelligent beings to live happily is God's way. That's right. All right, this is out of Review and Herald magazine, written July 17, 1900, over 100 years ago. See what you think of this one. For centuries, God looked with patience and forbearance upon the cruel treatment given to his ambassadors as his holy law prostrate, despised, trampled underfoot. He swept away the inhabitants of the Noatian world with a flood, but when the earth was again peopled, men drew away from God and renewed their hostility to him, manifested bold defiance. 
Those whom God rescued from Egyptian bondage followed in the footsteps of those who had preceded them. Cause was followed by effect. The earth was being corrupted. Pause right here. What law is being described here? Design. Cause following effect. This is design law. This is the law of liberty. They're left free to make their own choices. This is the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. This is the law of exertion. Things get stronger as you exercise them. So if you exercise vile and disgusting habit patterns, they get stronger. Okay? A crisis. Now, a crisis had arrived in the government of God. The earth was filled with transgression. The voices of those who had had been sacrificed to the human envy and hatred were crying beneath the altar for retribution. All heaven was prepared at the word of God to move to to the help of his elect. One word from him and the bolts of heaven would have fallen upon the earth, filling it with fire and flame. God had but to speak and there would have been thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and destruction. The heavenly intelligences were prepared for a fearful manifestation of almighty power. Every move was watched by, with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. Pause. I'm going to pause right in the middle of this. Pause. What was Satan's core lie about God? He told us what was the core. The absolute core bedrock lie about God. He can't be trusted was the consequence of the lie. What was the lie that made them think he couldn't be trusted? He was selfish. He's not safe with his power. Not safe with his power. He can't be trusted because how does he use this power, according to Satan? Of course. There you go. He's a, he can't be trusted. All these things are right because what does he do? He has power. It was never, we can't trust God because he's powerful. No, that's not why. Satan never said he wasn't powerful, never said uh, it, was, it was the use of power. And how was he alleging he used power? Selfishly. Selfishly. And how does selfish power work? It, it hurts people that don't do what you want. It punishes. It, it is coercive. It threatens. It's arbitrary. That's what selfish power does, right? So he said God sets up rules and he threatens to punish you if you don't, don't keep his rules. This is the core and in that system, which is completely different to design law. Design law is God makes his universe and in these principles are how life works and harmony is, is healing and restorative and happy. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, bringing life to the soul. Breaches of that design, though, are harmful and destructive. This is design law, not a system of rules that require authoritarian enforcement. Satan's lies are God is arbitrary and he uses power to enforce his way selfishly. That's exactly right. So, now with that in mind, what does justice look like under design law? Okay, if, you, if, if that term is too far, and think laws of health. Laws of health are design law. And so if you have a child who you've instructed in the ways of healthy living, and they grow up and they break the laws of health, they begin smoking, for instance, and you've t- instructed them not to, and they're an adult and they begin smoking, and they get some disease from smoking. And let's say you're a physician. That's why you taught them so clearly about the rules and laws of health. And, 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 but they're breaking them. And now they're sick. They have asthma, emphysema, some, some, some lung disease. And you're a physician. If you want to do justice to your child, what do you do for your child? What's the just thing to happen? If you see a child, your child comes to you. They're sick. They're suffering. What's the just action to take? What's the right thing for you to do, in other words? Punish them or heal them? Restore them to right living. Restore them to right living and intervene to heal the damage if you have the methods to do so. So justice under design law is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Justice under design law is God working through Christ to reconcile us and fix what sin has done to us and damage us. That's justice. Okay? But what's justice under human law constructs, imposed rules? What does justice require when somebody breaks the rules? You hear it in all the, the TV crime shows. Retribution. Punishment. Retribution. Okay, keep this in mind, because we're talking now, this person is trying to give us, this author is trying to give us a perspective of, of the crisis in the government of God, in the minds of the angels, okay? The intelligences, in, and so if, you, if the intelligences in heaven are seeing design law, when the question of the exercise of justice was expected, then they would expect God to heal and restore. If, on the other hand, Satan's lies are at work in their mind, and they actually are considering Satan's ways are, are actually legitimate, then what would the angels in heaven be expecting God to do at this crisis time in Old Testament history, when all things are out of control, this rebellion is happening, what would they expect God to do? To use power to punish. That's what they would expect. Now listen to what this author describes. Every move was watched with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. The angels looked for God to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Why did they look for punishment? Because Satan's lies looked reasonable to them. They were confused. They longed to look into these things. But notice the very next sentence. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It gives me chills. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I will send my beloved son, he said. It may be they, and maybe they will reverence him. Amazing grace. Christ came not to condemn the world. John 3.17 did not come to condemn. Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Here in his love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The heavenly universe was amazed at God's patience and love. To save fallen humanity, the son of God took humanity upon himself. What law is revealed, what justice is revealed in the coming of Jesus? This is design law. To fix what was broken and to restore human beings back to love and trust. This is the justice of God, which God revealed and which destroyed Satan's lies about God for all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And then, yes? You quote that First Peter one twelve, and that, at the end of that quote it says, these are the things the angels desired to look into. That's why this they wanted it. to look into it. Yes, because they actually were confused by the lies. And then uh, this one is another one. Signs of the Times, August 27, 1902. Two years after the other one. Same author. Before Christ's first advent, the sin of refusing to conform to God's law had become widespread. Apparently, Satan's power was growing. His warfare against heaven was becoming more and more determined. A crisis had been reached. With intense interest, God's movements were watched by the heavenly angels. Would he come forth with his, from his place to punish the inhabitants of the world for their iniquity? Would he send fire or flood to destroy them? All heaven waited the bidding of their commander to pour out the vials of wrath upon the rebellious world. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed, and the world's unfallen would have said, Amen. Thou art righteous, O God, because thou hast exterminated rebellion. But that's not what God did. Why didn't he do it? Can you instill trust by killing those who disagree with you? No. This is human law. This is Satan's lie at its core. And the unfallen beings were confused by it. 
And that's why Jesus said, at, right before the crucifixion, Jesus said, now, I, if I be, now is the time for the prince of this world to be cast out. Notice, now is the time. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Not all men. Men is supplied. If you have a Bible in English, in the Greek, there's no word men. I will draw all unto me. Because all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Colossians 1.18. Heavenly angels who stayed loyal had these questions, misunderstanding about how justice worked, and they have seen now the justice of God at work. And Satan was cast out. Well, how was he cast out? By the revelation of God's true character and justice in the life and work of Jesus Christ. He was cast out. Their, his lies were cast out, so he's cast out of their affections, out of their, their sympathy, out of their empathy for him. He's seen as a liar and a fraud. He's cast out into the open for all who now understand God's methods can't be duped or taken in by him. We're running out of time. There's so much more good stuff in our lesson this week. Okay, so we'll jump to, uh, we'll go to uh, Monday's lesson. Third paragraph, it says, Peter highlights one specific eyewitness event, the transfiguration of Jesus. And it goes on to talk about how he emphasizes this as good evidence that Jesus, in fact, was this Messiah. We were eyewitnesses of this. We saw his glory. He's shown in the brightness of the sun and so forth. First, I want to tell you, I believe the events that, that were recorded in the Gospels and what Peter refers to here are historic, accurate, really happened. And they happened because Jesus is the Son of God. And this is evidence which is consistent with his divinity and purity that we would expect to see in our creator God. So all of this is consistent with Jesus as the Son of God, our Savior. Am I clear on that? We all clear? Okay. But, and there is a but. And what's the but? It's not the best evidence. This type of physical manifestation, while everything I just said is true, can be counterfeited. Therefore, such manifestations alone, without the historic life of purity and self-sacrificial love lived out by Jesus, cannot be relied upon. Any Bible evidence to support my concerns? Well, how did Jesus approach, excuse me, when Jesus was in the wilderness, how did Satan approach him to tempt him? The scripture. But how did he physically approach him? As an angel of light. He didn't come as an angel of darkness. He came as an angel of light, and he performed miracles. I believe there was a miracle there when they suddenly were on top of the temple. That was transportation, teleportation of some kind. Miracles were being happening by this angel who presented his light. Or we can have some scripture text, 2 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Or Galatians 1, 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, then we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So what's the point here? That the true God will absolutely be powerful and absolutely have miraculous signs, revelations, and demonstrations that accompany his true visible presence. No doubt about that. But miracles, signs, and wonders can all be counterfeited. Thus, we must rely upon something that cannot be counterfeited. And what cannot be counterfeited? The truth. And in my view, the best approach to the truth is the integrative evidence-based, where it's true in Scripture, it's true in our relationships and experience, it's true in science and nature. All truths are harmonized. Then we can have great confidence. If you understand how these designs and protocols and God's character work, there are certain actions God will never, never take. Can anybody think of things God will never do? Force. 
Okay, I like that one. I'm going to get to that one in a second. How about lie? God will never lie. He will never tempt. He will never tempt, it says. God doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1. He will never say, love me or I will kill you. Coerce. Because why? It violates the law of liberty. You cannot get love by threatening to kill people who don't love you. It doesn't work. It actually violates how he's designed free sentient beings to work. God will not and in fact cannot force people to love and trust him. So when, be, uh, when beings of immense power and manifesting what appears to be heavenly light, performing miracles, attempt to impose a system of justice that functions like human justice using coercion, something like this. One day a being comes proclaiming to be Christ and he comes down from heaven. He has an entourage. He, he apparently raises the dead. He heals people who, who are with terminal illnesses. All kinds of miracles and bright lights and, and things are happening. But then he says, worship me. I love you. I died for you. I only want your good. I don't want to punish you. But if you refuse to worship me, you're breaking the commandments to have no other gods before me. And justice requires that if you break the law, I must punish you. Now, I've taken your punishment, and if you accept me as your Savior, you won't have to be punished. But if you reject me, then first you won't be able to buy or sell, say, him who has my mark. But he won't use that language. You have to have discernment to figure that out. And then we'll imprison you because I really don't want to kill you. And if you repent and anything along the way and just worship me, I won't have to kill you. But if you don't and you remain in rebellion, justice requires that divine retribution and divine justice be carried out. And we will have a judgment. We call that the great white throne judgment. And I will inflict the proper penalty. But don't make me do it, please. And many millions will say, this is our God. We have waited for him. And it's Satan. It's a lie. Okay, so one, one, one last thing. Wednesday's lesson, it talks about that when we come to study the Bible, we should, I don't have time to read the last two paragraphs in the pink section, but it talks about that we should surrender our opinions to the church, that we, we, uh, uh, should take our ideas about studying scripture and uh, the work of the community, and um, Peter is urging them to submit their interpretations of scripture to the leading to the leading of the church as a whole, because many people will drift into error if they don't take their ideas and let the church co- consensus keep them on track. This is the point that they're making, and I want to say to you, hmm. Hmm. So in Old Testament times, when the prophets came to the people to tell them of their sins and to turn them to a different path should the prophets have submitted their message to the consensus of the people and when the people said we don't like this message the prophets should say okay I'll go with what you say think about Jeremiah Jeremiah they didn't like what he said so they threw him in a pit so Jeremiah said well I've submitted to the consensus Lord I guess I should surrender my, uh, my, my message to them this is Zarvages 232 as the light and life of man was rejected by the ecclesiastical authorities in the days of Christ so it has been rejected in every succeeding generation Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea had been, has been repeated. When the reformers, you know, the reformers, Wesley and, and, um, and, and others, okay, uh, again and again, uh, when the reformers preached the word of God, they had no thought of separating themselves from the established church. But the religious leaders would not tolerate the light, and those that bore it were forced to seek another class who were longing for the truth. In our day, few of the professed followers of the reformers are actuated by their spirit. 
Few are listening to the vo- for the voice of God and are ready to accept truth in whatever guise it may be presented. Often those who follow in the steps of the reformers are forced to turn away from the churches they love in order to declare the plan, excuse me, the plain teaching of the word of God. And many times those who are seeking for light are by the same teaching obliged to leave the church of their fathers that they may render obedience. Does this sound like somebody who thinks that we have an idea, we believe the Holy Spirit has led us into certain truth, that we should go to the church and have the church say, no, no, the tradition, we've taught this way for 500 years, and you should reject this advancing, unfolding light, and you should stick with tradition. You see, church institutions protect tradition and the institution. They're really primarily not interested in unfolding and advancements. They're institutional, and they get stuck. I, I, which we could, I'll leave you to think about that. Is there a place, though, for people to, you know, iron sharpens iron, for people to come together and study? Absolutely, there's a place for it. But Paul says in Romans 14, regarding religious beliefs and practices, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. So my goal is not to tell any of you what to think, but to present ideas and concepts for you to go home and study and think for yourself. Weighing the evidence is, I hope, in the light of the integrative approach, coming to your own conclusion and be persuaded in your own mind. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all truth and all love, all purity and all light. We ask that the Holy Spirit we poured out, taking the light of Jesus Christ, the love and truth of Jesus Christ, pouring it into our minds, enlightening us to see and experience you more fully, enhancing our relationship with you and with each other that we can love as you love. We pray in your holy name. Amen.